Welcome, friends, to the State of the Outdoors podcast. Uh, it's our second podcast with a new format, uh, but we have the same mission to educate and inform sportsmen and women in the Commonwealth. Uh, the new format will still include our followers' favorites from the first year, but has new updates. So we are still doing the national and state issues update. Uh, then we're going to do an education piece, and uh, then we're going to do listener emails or uh, frequently asked questions. Uh, the last podcast, we had the chairman of Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Mr. Stephen Flagg, and the former 5th District Director of Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Mr. Josh Rodimer, on. We discussed uh, terrible legislation coming out of the House of Representatives. It was House Bill 395 at that time. And I'm really pr- proud to say that um, our concerted effort uh, at Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers uh, with our partners at the League of Kentucky Sportsmen, and uh, Kentucky and a Safari Club and a few other uh, entities in the conservation community put enough pressure on the sponsor of House Bill 395 to pull it. So he, um, Mr. C. Ed Massey uh, from Boone County, actually pulled House Bill 395. So we're awful proud um, to be engaging uh, and, and saying um, what we need to on behalf of the sportsmen and women of the Commonwealth and Honestly, we're calling good bills good bills and bad bills bad bills. Um, uh, we have some more of that to, to talk about today. But uh, I am happy that my uh, good friend and co-host, Mr. Ben Bishop, is back with us. How you been, man? What you been up to? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, as far as hunting and fishing goes, I haven't really been able to get out a whole lot. We've, uh, we've had quite a bit of snow the last little bit, so I've been out pushing that and uh we've got baseball season getting ready to kick off here this week so looking forward to that and uh i guess next up for me is going to be turkey season but until then it's baseball yeah man i have been running wide open with um you know teaching high school and this legislative session trying to um you know help work the good stuff and help you know bang the drum and make people aware of the bad stuff so that they can engage their uh legislators uh i had a pretty good trapping season um not nearly as good as last year but i put out the same number of traps in similar locations with similar bait so i'm wondering if i'm having an effect because i'm just trapping my farm so that was a interesting conclusion to the trapping season that's happened um since our last podcast and then what are, what are your uh, what are your target uh, target species there when you're trapping my target species are nest rating rodents um the top three are raccoons skunks and possums um every every now and then i'll get something uh totally different i have tried um some different sets up in a rocky area and on the side of a hill in the woods down off the edge of one of my wildflower and native warm season grass fields um thinking that's a very bobcatty kind of area um and it is. It just seems like there ought to be bobcats going through there every now and then. Um, but all I got out of that spot was, was possums. So I, I don't know. 
Uh, I'm not the gotcha. best. <laughs> I'm not the not the best trapper in the world, but I, I will say that um, last year we could see two hen turkeys um, that nested uh, in in the warm season grasses and wildflowers that we planted three years ago. And we've got now three coveys of quail living on the farm. And so those are all oh, gra- awesome. Yeah, yeah. Those are all ground nesting birds, as we both know. So keeping the predators knocked back a little bit's got to help. And, and then um, and then I've tried, I've, I've done a little bit of habitat work. Um, uh, my good friend uh, Brian is, is um, going to uh, be helping me out with a little bit better tractor here soon. So I've done a little, a little bit of timber stand improvement, and I'm going to, I'm going to bush hog some openings uh, for my wildlife. And um, as we transition to musky season or fishing season, these early colder days are good for musky. And Aline and I are going to try again this weekend um, to get her a musky. It's kind of like one of her bucket list fish. So that's, right. what, that's what we've been doing in the outdoors, man. Good. Where, uh, where's, uh, what part of the state are you going to for musky? Cave Run Lake. Yeah. Hey, Brian. Yeah. yeah, and and to be honest, man, we hire a guide. I mean, I as much as I've they're got, tough. Going, yeah, <laughs> they're a tough fish, and as much as I've got going on, um, and, and taking our, you know, our we've got a nice little boat, but um, this time of year, if a storm pops up or the wind pops up, it, it, it can be tough on a little boat. Uh, so, yeah, you know, I'd rather use someone else's equipment and by the time you uh, i drag my boat all the way to cave run and 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 go through that it's really not even worth the gas it's uh yeah you know so that's um, understandable yeah and the guy we hire is a is an outstanding i mean he fishes you know he's a professional he doesn't just dabble in it so so hopefully we get her a bucket list fish and you know in the future after we get one then any other one we get is good but we've got to get the first one on the board for my for my lovely wife so (laughs) awesome are you ready for the national update my friend i am we gotta get a few things on the agenda here and then uh, we'll get to you with uh, the commonwealth stuff so we're uh, we're gonna start out with uh, the Good Samaritan remediation of abandoned Hard Rock Mines Act. That's uh, that's a mouthful. Yep. But it's legislation that was introduced by Senator Martin Heinrich and Jim Rich. It would allow the Good Samaritan entities, such as state state agencies, local governments, and nonprofits, to clean up abandoned Hard Rock mine sites without assuming future liability. Apparently, the Good Samaritan groups who want to volunteer to restore these abandoned mines and improve water quality, as well as fish and wildlife habitat, would be liable for any future pollution from the site. By implementing the pilot program with the permits for qualified entities, the Good Samaritan remediation of abandoned Hard Rock Mines app would facilitate private investments to fill resource and capacity gaps with an estimated 40% of watersheds in the West contaminated by mine tailings and runoffs of this legislation is critical to restore healthy fish and wildlife habitat for future generations. Yeah, that's, also a, that's a good th- deal, man. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we also uh, we want to thank Congress for passing the Chronic Wasting Disease Research and Management Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chronic wasting disease represents one of the greatest threats to deer, elk, and other wild servants in the United States. Legislation uh, led by Representatives Kind and Glenn Thompson chronic wasting disease research and management act was passed by the house of representatives 
in December of 21. This legislation would help address the threat by funding coordinated management between the USDA and state wildlife agencies and departments of agriculture. This would also fund CWD research and the development of educational materials to inform the public. Mm-hmm. All right, moving on, we've got uh, the Reasonable Renewable Energy Development and Wildlife Habitat. The Public Land Renewable Energy Development Act, or PLORADA. That's our favorite the, acronym ever, PLORADA. Yeah, that, that, that's a tough <laughs> one to say. That's a lot of consonants there at the beginning. Yeah. This would uh, encourage responsible development of wind, solar, and geothermal energy on our public lands while also conserving the integrity of the landscape for fish and wildlife habitat. Uh, The bill was drafted to highlight the importance of multiple-use management of our public lands and to demonstrate how to balance energy development without sacrificing hunting and fishing values or threatening the fish and wildlife habitat. By proactively identifying priority areas for wind, solar, and geothermal development, Florida encourages smart siting and efficient permitting of projects in places with high potential for energy and low impact for wildlife and habitat. Florida also creates a conservation fund where 25% of the revenue generated from the wind and solar development would go towards the fish and wildlife conservation. Yeah, man, let, let's let's linger on that terrible acronym, Florida, real quick. The, the, <laughs> the, the first and coolest part of that is it hi- it highlights the fact that you know our national our lands that are held by the federal government in trust for every american so we we call that um the public trust doctrine so the the government holds these lands in trust for us groups like hunt backcountry hunters and anglers and the and the other groups that you and I belong to in the conservation community We're not saying, like, energy bad. Absolutely not. I mean, right now, look at what we're dealing with with Russia and Ukraine and how that's impacted world energy markets. I mean, the gas in in Louisville is almost $5 a gallon. It's it's just shy of four dollars, like high, you know, $3.89, $3.99 down here in God's country. And, you know, we in the conservation community believe in the multiple use of our public lands, which means where it makes sense, yes, let's let's drill for oil, let's let's extract natural gas, let's extract copper. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's where it makes sense, right? So in the next thing, exactly. you're going to highlight the Boundary Waters next, I think, right? Yes. Yeah, yep, that's so, coming up. Yep, so Boundary Waters is next. So let's talk about where it's stupid to try to do mining, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Around the boundary waters. But but Plurida says where it makes sense, let's drill, let's extract, let's do what we can for the multiple use doctrine and the multiple use, you know, strategies that we have on our federal public lands that they keep in trust for us. And then this twenty five percent fund that Plurida creates sounds a whole lot like another fund that we love so much that has a uh, and kind of a excise tax on offshore drilling, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. So it, Plurida sets up another, you know, fund based on energy extraction. Whether you know, and this is geothermal, wind, and solar, just like our offshore drilling revenue um, helps fund wildlife conservation. So I had to had to segue between between where it makes sense to drill and where it makes sense to dig out. Um, you know, things like copper and then where you're going to now where it doesn't make sense. Right. This, 
the it, it could be a very very important act for everybody to keep their to keep their eye on within within the coming months. Yep. All right. So yeah, next up we're gonna do we're gonna go to the Boundary Waters. Uh, Bureau of Land Management and U.S. Forest Service are in the plan or in the process of an application for a 20-year moratorium on mining on federal public lands in the watershed upstream of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. The process includes a 90-day public comment period for the public to weigh in. Boundary Waters is the most visited area in the United States. Proposed sulfide ore copper mining would have disastrous impacts on the irreplaceable fish and wildlife habitat such as accessible out, outdoor opportunity for Americans to hunt, fish, recreate, and most and, and must not be lost to irresponsible development. Yeah, we, we, can't, we can't dig copper ore upstream of the boundary wall. No. That is the no, dumb. That is so stupid. That's so stupid. <laughs> and uh, next up, we've got the North American Gra- uh, Grassland Conservation Act. Backcountry hunters and anglers, in partnership with a coalition of conservation organizations, is promoting the creation of legislation called the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. This proposed legislation would invest $350 million annually for voluntary conservation programs targeting our threatened grassland and sagebrush habitats. That's going to be a good deal, too, man. Yeah, a a lot of good stuff going so far. And uh, we've got a Rawa coming up next. Recovering Americans' wildlife, America's wildlife act. In partnership with a coalition of organizations, businesses, and fish and wildlife management agencies that make up the Alliance for America's Fish and Wildlife, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers is working to advance legislation that would dedicate 1.4 billion dollars annually to help state and tribal fish and wildlife management agencies. Proactively manage at-risk species and prevent them from being added to the federal list of threatened and endangered species. Yeah, man, we gotta we gotta hit the pause button, kind of slow down on Rawa, man. So for for folks that don't know what Rawa is, the Recovering America Wild, America's Wildlife Act started with a blue ribbon panel of industry experts and scientists and government officials to try to figure out what the real funding gap was to arrest or stop the loss of species, right? So there was a very disturbing report that Trout Unlimited um, highlighted in their recent uh, magazine about how um, overuse of insecticides is killing um, our aquatic insects and really hurting the future um, of our cold water trout fisheries and it's really agriculture and and some other mostly agriculture that's doing it but what we've got is we've got scientists telling us we're going to lose a certain number of species in the next 20 years what what Ra was trying to do what Ra was trying to do is figure out what the funding gap is to help state and tribal fish and game management agencies to fund the habitat work and the habitat remediation to arrest or stop loss of species. And that's both game species and non-game species. So Recovering America's Wildlife Act could be the biggest funding vehicle for um, not just 
maintaining the status quo, but improving uh, habitat and uh, game and non-game species across, you know, North America. If that gets passed, man, our, our state agencies are not going to be screaming for money anymore. You know, right. they're going to have the fiscal, the monetary resources to do the work they need to do. Good stuff. All right, next up, we got the Mapland Act for a better public lands management. Senators Rish King and then Representatives Moore and Schreier, along with others, uh, introduced bicameral and bipartisan legislation modernizing access to our public land or the Mapland Act. This legislation will provide public land management agencies, including the Bureau of Land Management, Fish and Wildlife Service, Forest Service, National Park Service, Bureau of Rec- Reclamation and Corps of Engineers with funds to modernize map records from paper to a standard online database. That's going to be outstanding good stuff when we get that. Right. I, I, don't, I don't see how anybody could be against that. No, no. And lastly, we have Protecting America's Wilderness and Public Lands Act. Uh, this was introduced by Representative Rahalva out of Arizona and 16 other members the Protecting America's Wilderness and Public Lands Act, or H.R. 803, passed the House on February 26th. It consists of nine bills that would designate 1.49 million acres of public lands as wilderness, incorpor- incorporate more than 1,000 rivers as part of the National Wild and Scenic River System, and ensure that an additional 1.3 million acres remains intact for recreational use. Yeah, that last one, that that Protecting America's Wilderness and Public Lands Act is interesting. We've talked about that before because it it bolts together multiple smaller bills that, you know, come from states all across uh, the West um, where it's trying to uh, protect these valuable resources, man. And and can you imagine putting another 1,000 river miles into the National Wild and Scenic River System. I mean, that's going to protect so much of our, right, you know, right. uh, of our fishing uh, opportunities. That's that's outstanding stuff right there. Absolutely. And that uh, that does it for me on the national side. And uh, I know you've probably got a probably got a little bit to talk about on the state side. <laughs> As usual, right? This As is usual. this is the busy time of year because um, we've got legislation going in in so many different directions and uh you know like i said on the last podcast for the first month of this session there was really nothing going on there was two boating bills or or safe boating bills out there one in the house and one in the senate and and um i was taking a deep breath and thinking man this is going to be you know an easy session we're not going to have this flood of bills that are designed to radically change the Department of Fish and Wildlife like we did last session in 2021. Boy, was I wrong. Um, my goodness, the second month of the session, February, turned up all kinds of legislation that's just, it's worse than questionable. But but let's start with some good news. We still have not discovered CWD in Kentucky. Everybody goes crazy. Yeah. So, um, I'm sure I I was trying to confirm before we did this podcast, if they still have samples, um, from the season, um, you know, at the lab, but, you know, part of the CWD plan in the surveillance zone 
is, you know, they're still, um, they are still collecting samples, whether, you know, whether it be uh, department personnel taking deer or it's roadkill deer, they're still taking samples. So this is an ongoing thing down in the surve- uh, CWD surveillance zone. Now, of course, it's, it's ramped down a little bit. Uh, one of my best buds that I was in the Army with is now a wildlife technician, and uh, he was working down there for quite a while. And he and I had some long talks about um, how many hours and how many extra people were down there. And the good news is we haven't found CWD in the state of Kentucky yet. So congratulations, everybody. Um, We've had two meetings uh, of the Fish and Wildlife Commission uh, since we last um, uh, talked about Fish and Wildlife Commission business because our last podcast was really um, almost totally about House Bill 395 and and some really bad legislation. Um, so let's let's get back to talking about what our Fish and Wildlife Commission did at a January 14th special called meeting. Uh, the key accomplishments at that meeting, according to the department, and I'm pulling this right off their website, is um, they had uh, an agenda item up where uh, they want to develop a smartphone app uh, with has an auto renewal option for licenses and permits, and our. Um, Hunting and fishing licenses would be like a hard card, like your um, driver's license. And they say it's going to have a bunch of next generation features. And, um, you know, really the special call video conference, um, we had a long discussion that where they had a long discussion. I'm not part of it. And it was it was kind of hard to watch. Um, some of our commissioners, God love them, really don't understand how things work. You know, they, they kept saying it doesn't require, you know, Wi-Fi or internet. Well, that's the same thing, fellas. It doesn't, you know, require cellular. Okay, here's what it does. And they're and they're talking about other states' systems because we don't have a system yet. It caches the data on your phone so that when you get signal, it immediately connects and sends that data. So, okay, it it they say it, you know, they tell you, well, it doesn't need cellular or Wi-Fi to work. It does. It's just caching the data on your phone until it gets that signal. So there's some interesting stuff that goes along with that and, and the model associated with it. Um, a lot of sportsmen's groups across the Commonwealth were really not happy about that. Uh, really, really not happy because what happened was is they published multiple agenda items over the last few years where they were updating the legal language um, that would allow them to outsource because the department can't do an app the department can't do auto renewal options for license and they can't issue a hard card without some changes uh, to kentucky law we can't by law keep your credit card number Uh, i keep saying we the state by law no agency can keep your credit card number for auto renewal and the department's not really set up for hard card license options. This would be a lot of work on the department's part to keep it in-house, but it's also possible that they could do that. They've just decided they're going to outsource it. Um, And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. This smartphone app and auto renewal and all this is not necessarily a bad thing. The problem is, once again, Ben, they've just gone whole cloth and said, you know, sportsmen, you had input. No, we didn't. We absolutely did not. My commissioner will not even answer the phone, and I'm, a, and I'm on the board of directors of three conservation groups. Whether we get along or not, we can be grown men and talk. He won't even answer the phone. So, you know, there was no public comment period of any, you know, substance. Um, there was no public meeting for debate. 
um, you know, the, the department says, oh, we take public comment. You take public comment from the time the agenda is published until 1030 the day of the meeting and only read those out loud that you got before the meeting started. So there's no way for us to c truly comment and have, a, you know, a true iterative dialogue with our own department to get things done. Um, so this is one of the only times that I can remember since 2016. Uh, there's one of, I think, three times I can remember since 2016 where we had a split vote on the commission. The commission voted five to three um, to move this forward. Um, the interesting thing about this is um, this regulation is still sitting at Fish and Wildlife. It hasn't been moved um, from the department uh, through the regulatory process down at the legislature. And before that happened, um, uh, House Bill 344, which has very similar language to what happened, uh, what was approved in the January 14th meeting, was passed. So House Bill 344 uh, has passed the House and it's not yet passed the Senate. If House Bill 344 goes through, then the legislature will have given the department the authority to outsource our licensing. And that's interesting in a lot of ways. Our Fish and Wildlife Commission has the power to do all of these things. We are seeing over the last two years the erosion of the power of our commission because every time the commission gets hung up with something that the sportsmen want to slow down and the sportsmen and women in the Commonwealth want to have input and we want to talk about it, we want to make sure it's something that we want because we pay the bills, the next thing you know, it goes straight through the legislature because of the friends of the department and the commission that they have downtown. So um, if House Bill 344 gets through the Senate, we're going to have a um, third-party licensing system much quicker. Now, having said that, again, a smartphone app could be a good thing. Auto renewal could be a good thing. A hard card, even though I don't know how you would do, um, you know, where would you write your telecheck confirmation number on a hard card you're you're still going to need some kind of you know um you know i i don't understand <laughs> and none of the sportsmen understand how this is actually going to work because it was all about changing language and then and then all of a sudden it went from changing language which would have been the first step right you have to change the legal language in order to then develop what we would want in a third-party licensing system. And, you know, the deputy commissioner, Mr. Clark, kept saying, well, once it's put out for RFP, which is a bid process at the state, you know, we really can't have input. That's also not 100% true. The bottom line is, and I've done a lot of contracting in my life, and I actually have called the person who is one of the senior contractors in Frankfurt who taught me how to do contracts back when I was running a lot of money for, for the state and federal government. And I ran myself with him back through the process. It is our job as stakeholders to help the department develop the RFP, to put out the parameters and the requirements that we want in this bid process that a third-party civilian entity is going to come in and take over our licensing program for the Department of Fish and Wildlife. And when this happens, we're actually not going to, when we, when we have an issue, we're not going to call the department. We're going to call the customer service agency that's associated with the third-party vendor. Well, most third-party vendors that states are using right now, their customer service is a subcontractor. It's not even the vendor. 
So if we have a problem with this, we don't call the department. We don't even call the, the agency that issues the license. We call a third-party customer service outfit. So all these things are things that we wish we had the opportunity to have input on um, before um, they got voted on a split vote five to three once again uh, on the commission in January. But House Bill 344 is going to ramrod that right through here soon. And so I got a caveat off of this. The deputy commissioner, Mr. Clark, also said that this is going to save us a bunch of money. And there was a couple figures put out in different meetings and in different emails and actually a couple different Facebook posts, which, you know, our department officials are not supposed to campaign one way or the other on social media, but he did. If this saves us a bunch of money, please put it against our conservation officers' pay and benefits. Please make it budget neutral. So I'm, you know, we've talked before about my background, but at the end of my career, I managed uh, close to 260, uh, well, it was $265 million roughly. Now, most of that was payroll. So it was not discretionary spending, right? I had to help make payroll for hundreds um, of employees. But I had about $70 million that was discretionary. I had a lot of money to spend there. That's more than the department's budget by a whole lot. And I know what I'm talking about when it comes to budgeting. I really do. I've passed fiscal law three times. Okay, so here's the deal. A budget-neutral initiative is what this could generate. What that means is if we save a bunch of money on a third-party vendor doing our um, – licenses, hunting, fishing, trapping, boating licenses, then we ought to take the money we save at the Department of Fish and Wildlife saves and put it against what many sportsmen believe is, is the most exigent or most important circumstance we have right now, which is retaining our trained and experienced conservation officers. And why is this important? Well, they've always been a little bit underpaid compared to their peers. It's important because in the governor's budget, is a significant pay raise for Kentucky State Police. And Kentucky State Police are almost always ready to take a transfer before they put the money into training someone. So if the Kentucky State Police take a transfer from another law enforcement agency, then they don't have to pay the police academy to train a new recruit. So we could lose conservation officers to KSP. We're already losing them to other um state and local law enforcement agencies because they get better paying benefits. So we got a real interesting thing going on with this third-party licensing thing. The final thing to talk about on third-party licensing is we're going to pay more, Ben. Um, how much more? I don't know. Um, there have been all kinds of figures thrown around, but the bottom line is, is there's going to be fees associated with paying for this third-party vendor to give us our own licenses, meaning the department's getting out of the licensing business. They're going to save the money it costs them to manage and issue licenses. But the third-party vendor's got to get paid somehow, and he's going to charge us. So there's a lot going on there. Uh, that's why it was a, a big issue. Um, they tabled it from the regular December meeting to this special call meeting in January, and that's a mouthful right there. That is. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I mean, I think an overwhelming majority of people would be in favor of this. It's just the fact that, you know, we would have liked to have some sort of a say in it as well. Right. And and that's where we're at with a lot of things right now with the department and the legislature. 
nobody's contacting the senior leadership of the conservation community. Nobody's from the from the commission. Nobody's reaching out anymore and asking for our input. And when we reach out to our very own commissioners, they don't answer the phone. If they do answer the phone, it's combative. It's not you know like we're going to collaborate like grown-ups and the legislators certainly aren't getting our help to write the bills that are out there right now we had zero input to house bill 344 which i just talked about which completely changes our licensing system so mm-hmm. what i i even heard uh one of the uh one of the commissioners say how it would help recruit new hunters and <laughs> i just i think that's a lot of bs to be honest yeah i don't if I don't think just because you have an app on your phone, it's going to make somebody start hunting or fishing, but yeah. it is what it is. Yep. I'm, I'm lost my mind on, on how this is not working, but, um, so, um, let's, let's revisit real quick, um, our conservation officers. So if we're saving money on third party vendor licensing, I keep saying we, if the department of fish and wildlife resources is going to save money, on this licensing, let's do something to recruit and retain our conservation officers. Let's use the money we saved, and let's say it's $2 million, okay? Let's just earmark that $2 million, move it right over to conservation officer pay and benefits. That is budget neutral. That's money we saved in one area to spend on something we need to spend it on in another area, right? Budget neutral, perfect, right? We currently have 52 counties without a dedicated conservation officer we got to fix that we got to fix that and a budget neutral initiative which is what even though we're getting third-party vendor rammed down our throats without any input from us if it saves money let's make a budget neutral initiative and give that money to our conservation officers to retain them we got to fix that okay Let's move on to February. So um, February was interesting because in February we still had the 4th District Commissioner, uh, Mr. Brian Mackey, um, working and, uh, you know, trying to do the best he could um, for his constituents in his counties. And he actually asked um, the chairman of the Fish and Wildlife Commission, Dr. Carl Clonard, if he would entertain adding conservation officer retention and paying benefits to the agenda for the special call meeting on February 18th. He did not. So um, that was really uh, a very disappointing uh, circumstance. Um, So what they actually did cover uh, in the February 18th special call meeting uh, was to um, amend KAR or 301 KAR 2132, which is elk permit deferral. So they're now going to, once this change gets through the legislature, and it it could be, they're they're really way behind on getting these through the legislature, but once this gets through the legislature, what they're going to do is they're going to allow any service member uh, who is deployed or restationed outside Kentucky um, who purchased an elk permit before their scheduled date. Um, uh, to hunt, to defer it. So if you're a service member, and I don't know how many of these there could be, um, we're going to have 594 general elk permits um, uh, raffled off here in a few months. Um, But they're going to amend the law, or excuse me, the admin regulation uh, to allow service members who are deployed or restationed outside Kentucky to defer that elk license. 
uh, for a year, and then if they're unable to hunt uh, because of military assignment, a second year. So that's that's a pretty good deal. Um, then the commission approved a proposal to collect and contribute uh, samples from Kentucky deer to the national surveillance effort led by the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, to see if COVID uh, exists in whitetail deer and if there's a risk of spreading COVID from deer to people. And um, I, I don't, sounds like a good thing to do. Um, the commission also approved a, a $20,000 contract with Murray State University to uh, do a long-term study on alligator gar. And um, then they uh, entered into executive closed session um, to talk about a litigation with the Kentucky Open Government Coalition and other uh, court um, decisions that they've had against them re uh, recently. So that, that lawsuit with Kentucky Open Government Coalition is interesting because that started from uh, a complaint um, of uh, sportsmen um, who wanted um, department records of email and uh, text messages about business. Now, if you read the open records law, those are subject to open records. If you watched the ethics training that the department had December a year ago, uh, which is on YouTube, they were told by department lawyers and by tourism cabinet lawyers that their personal emails and uh, cell phone texts that were about business were, in fact, subject to open records requests. Um, that records request was denied, so sportsmen made a request for open records that included uh, emails and cell phone texts that were only business uh, of the department or the commission, not personal, but they were on the commissioner's personal emails and phones. And since then, the commission uh, commissioners have been issued a state email. Well, why were they issued a state email? Because the judge in that case said that their personal emails, or that their, their, their uh, emails that had to do with Department of Fish and Wildlife business and Fish and Wildlife Commission business that were on their personal account were, in fact, subject to open records, right? So Judge Wingate ruled that on their private email accounts, anything that was business of the department or business of the commission was subject to open records. He did not make a definitive, um, in my mind, he did not make a definitive decision on the private or the public this is a really confusing issue. He did not make a definitive decision on the text messages that were on their private cell phones that were about commission and department business, and that is now up on appeal. So they went into executive session to talk about that lawsuit, and that lawsuit was, was brought by the Kentucky Open Government Coalition. Um, it was not brought by a sportsman, which there's been a rumor out there that, that someone did that. That's bull. Um, the Kentucky Open Government Coalition watches decisions that come out of the Attorney General's office, right? So this sportsman asked for these business emails and business texts that were on the commissioner's private accounts. The commission denied it. The sportsman appealed to the Attorney General. The Attorney General agreed with the sportsman and said that that information is subject to open records. That's how the Kentucky Open Government Coalition found out about it. When the department still wouldn't give up the information, they sued. So, um, and um, 
Judge Wingate really went into talking about um, transparency at that point, and um, he was very critical of their use of private devices um, and accounts uh, to reduce transparency, and, and he He's actually quoted in the paper. It says, The court admonishes state employees, officials, and volunteers from using privately owned devices and accounts to conduct state business. However, the ultimate responsibility with enforcement rests with the agencies. So, having said that, our department wouldn't give it up, but we have laws right now that they're trying to, or they have bills right now that, we're, that they're trying to pass, specifically House Bill 605 and Senate Bill 217, which would give the department custody of their own records it wouldn't be in the tourism cabinet anymore it would be in their own custody so they wouldn't give up their records the attorney general said they had to judge wingate says the responsibility rests with the agency so here here we're in this circular thing right in the military we call this a self-licking ice cream cone we're in this self-licking ice cream cone where the department doesn't want to give it up the attorney general says they have to the open government coalition sues the the commission and the department they get a partial victory. Now it's in on appeal. And then the commission also has... So they, so let me see if I can line this out for you, Ben. So And our listeners. So here's the deal. The Fish and Wildlife Commission and the Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources was sued to give up information. That happened before the legislative session started. They don't want to give up that information. During this legislative session, there's two laws that says they get to keep their own records. Now, to me, that's a linear connection. We're connecting the fact that they're being sued to give up records with the fact that we have two laws, or excuse me, two bills, which have not yet become laws, House Bill 605 and uh, Senate Bill 217, that would give them custody of their own records. So an agency that doesn't want to comply with Open Records Act now is asking um, to keep their own records and they wouldn't even be in the custody of uh, the tourism cabinet. So we've got a real uh, <laughs> a real problem, um, you know, with what's going on here. Um, so uh, the last thing about open meetings, open records in um, this, this, this discussion is there is still a pending lawsuit where a sportsman um, found the department in violation of the Open Meetings Act. So we just talked about open records. Found them in violation of the Open Meetings Act. Again, the attorney general agreed with the sportsman. So the attorney general agreed with the sportsman on the Open Records Act, which turned into the Kentucky Open Government Coalition lawsuit against the commission and the department. And the attorney general agreed with the sportsman again in an open meetings act violations so multiple violations of open records and open meetings yet they want to become sole custodians of all of their information does that sound like it makes sense to you ben uh not in the least no it doesn't (laughs) so here's here's what is just this is this is something else is really despicable and this really stinks this is uh you know at school right now I'm, i'm teaching um we always teach the army values you know the army values you know you know, loyalty, honor, integrity, personal courage, selfless service. We, all, we always teach that stuff to the kids. But now I'm teaching ethics to the kids as well and talking about ethics. And so we have two, we had at the time, we had two new commissioners that hadn't been confirmed by the Senate, Brian Mackey in the fourth and Jerry Farrell in the sixth. And they should have had time to be part of 
the March Fish and Wildlife Commission meeting, the full commission meeting, because that usually happens earlier in the month, and Senate confirmations in years past don't happen until the end of March. So they should have had one more meeting with Commissioners Brian Mackey and Jerry Farrell representing the people in the 4th, the sportsmen and women in the 4th and the 6th districts. Well, guess what? They moved the March meeting so that those guys couldn't have another meeting. Think about that. They moved the March meeting. You know, we, it's, it's in our doctrine. It's in the bylaws. There's a March meeting. They moved the March meeting to April because it would be after confirmation. So these guys, if they weren't confirmed, couldn't participate. And guess what happened? They moved the March meeting. Then Senator Stivers called Senate Resolution 138 to the floor completely different than every other year. You know, unprecedented to call a resolution to the floor of constitutionally appointed commissioners who were appointed by the governor, call them to the floor for confirmation, run their name in the ground, and then have a vote to not confirm. And they moved the March meeting so that they could use that resolution in the Senate to not confirm those commissioners so they never would be able to sell in the commission again. That's despicable. It's absolutely despicable. Yeah, it's almost as if there was uh, some sort of plan there. Almost. Um, it certainly looks like a plan to me, and if anybody wants to learn more about that um, debacle, that tragedy, we had a damn good man in the 4th District, Brian Mackey, and they under undermined... Uh, his Senate confirmation for purely political reasons. And if you don't believe me, listen to the Jim Strader show um, from uh, last week, last Sunday. Okay, listen to the Jim Strader show. He did a whole show on it, and he plays Senator Stiver's own words in the Senate floor multiple times. They talk about multiple um, untruths. They talk about uh, multiple uh, use of innuendo and just read, I mean, let's just call it like we see it, bullshit, to make sure that Mackey wasn't confirmed. And they moved the meeting to after the Senate resolution to all the way to April so that, you know, Mackey never had a chance to sit in another meeting. The final thing I'll say about the February special call meeting is remember, the number one issue that sportsmen have right now, the number one issue is retention and pay of our conservation officers. And who was the one that said, can we please put that on the February special call meeting agenda? Chairman Kleinard, can we please put that on there? Who said that? Mr. Mackey from the 4th District. Commissioner Mackey said that. He's trying to get a public discussion on why we don't pay our conservation officers enough and why their benefits are so low and how we can retain them before we lose some more because other state agencies are paying a lot more and they're going to transfer. They, by law, it's their right. It, it's just their job. You know, they can transfer, they can resign and transfer to another law enforcement agency anytime. Mr. Mankey asked Chairman Kleiner to have it on the February special call meeting so there could be public debate on it. Chairman Kleiner said no. Now, Okay, I'm also calling bullshit. Okay, we don't curse much on the show, but I'm telling you, this is bullshit because we had time to talk about a $20,000 contractor renewal for Murray State to do a long-term study on alligator guard, but we don't have time to talk about conservation officers paying benefits in a public meeting? Come on, man. That ain't right. That just ain't right. Ugh, make me wanna, makes my skin crawl, man. Ah, uh, yeah, that's uh, it's really aggravating. Yeah, 
I mean, they're shutting down. They're shutting down good commissioners by using the, the their powerful friends in the legislature. They're ramming, you know, language about a third party vendor down our throats with what? Oh, friends in the legislature. Well, that segues us to legislation. So, um, we really need to um, pay attention. Our listeners really need to pay attention to the number of bills um, that we have in our legislature and the number uh, that could have honestly been fixed by the Fish and Wildlife Commission. So a lot of these bills um, are legislators doing the business of our Fish and Wildlife Commission. And when we make the Fish and Wildlife Commission less relevant this year, uh, we kind of undermined them a little bit last session. We're making them very We're marginalizing them this session by passing things into law that are supposed to be passed in admin regulation that the one, the 150 series of Kentucky revised statute, the law allows our nine commissioners to do quite a few of the laws I'm about to bring up. The the stuff that's getting passed by the legislature could be done by the commission. Thereby, they're marginalizing the commission. They're making the commission look less relevant. They're making the commission look less important. It sounds like the the political strategy of, of defund and decry. You know, it really does. So what what myself and some other conservation leaders are really starting to worry about is what we saw last session, what we see this session, what we see on the horizon is the continued erosion of the relevance and importance of our Fish and Wildlife Commission. Those nine members those volunteers that we nominated sportsmen who are supposed to represent us, who have the power to make these changes and have the power to, to do it for us with our input are going to go away. The legislature has always wanted control of the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and they're proving it this year with these bills. And I will bet you money that in the next mm, three to five years, our commission goes away. It's a sad state of affairs. Let's dive into legislation. So, Senate Bill 35 is uh, a, a boater safety bill. Uh, we really need um, improved boater safety, folks. We have, um, it was a little more than three dozen people drowned last year. Um, we've got entirely too many reckless and negligent um, boating operators out there, and uh, we really need to get that uh, fixed. So, Senate Bill 35 uh, would revise current law on safe boating, and, and that's a good bill. Um so here's an interesting one. Uh, Senate Bill 350 uh, r- would restrict nominees to appointed positions that would require Senate confirmation from assuming the duties until they are confirmed by the Senate. So let me say that again. Senate Bill 350 w- would restrict nominees to appointed positions that require Senate confirmation from assuming the duties of the position until they are confirmed by the Senate. So that speaks to our Fish and Wildlife Commissioners. <laughs> Historically, we nominate them, and as soon as the governor appoints them, then they serve to represent the people in their districts. That is what's important. They serve to represent the people in their districts. This this bill, Senate 350, Senate Bill 350, says that until they're confirmed by the Senate, they cannot sit in that appointed seat, that constitutionally appointed seat by the executive branch. That's a constitutional right of the executive branch to appoint and they're supposed to sit there and work for the people of their district until such time as they're confirmed. And the confirmation process, when it was written into law, was just supposed to be a check ride. It was just supposed to make sure that nothing went wrong in the nominations and appointment process. Now they're turning it into 
the Senate gets to control who gets to sit on the on the boards and commissions, right? They're attacking the, the power of the executive branch, and that's not a good thing. Um, Senate Bill 356 would amend uh, Kentucky Rise Statute 11 Alpha 010 uh, to include members of Fish and Wildlife Resources uh, into the jurisdiction of Executive Branch Ethics Commission. This is a big one, folks. Most people do not realize that the Kentucky uh, Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources Commission, our commissioners, are not subject to the ethics rules. Think about that. Your commissioners aren't subject to ethics. There's been a couple times in the last few years that complaints have been filed in Frankfurt um, at the cabinet level saying that unethical things were done uh, on the Fish and Wildlife Commission, and the response was they are not subject to the Ethics Commission rules. So we really should get them subject to Ethics Commission. I can't imagine why anybody would not be subject to the Ethics Commission. And Senate Bill 356 seeks to make that happen. Um, so we also have um, Senate Bill 217. So we, we're going to talk a little bit here in a second about House Bill 605. Uh, Senate Bill 217 is very similar. We're going to talk in a minute about House Bill 513. Senate Bill 218 is very similar. So we're going to go into the House bills, and then we're going to talk about 605 uh, and 17, 217 together and 513 and 218 together. So House Bill 19 uh, is a similar bill um, to Senate Bill 35. It is a safe boating bill. Again, House Bill 19 is a safe boating bill. It's a good bill. Uh, House Bill 20 um, is an interesting bill. Very, very interesting um, in regards to uh, making felony penalties for the torture of a dog or a cat. And it, the language says intent to cause increase or prolong pain and suffering of a dog or a cat. Um, and it lists electrocuting in the definition of torture. So for those folks out there that are... Um, houndsmen or who hunt uh, with a, uh, wa a waterfowl dog or a uh, bird dog, you really need to be paying attention to House Bill 20 because it lists electrocuting in, in definition of torture and our electronic callers, um, not callers like our, our, you know, you know, they're not going to call like a duck call or like an elk bugle, our collars, our electronic collars. Where you press a button and it beeps, and if the dog doesn't listen, you press a second button and you shock them. There's a little bit of worry with House Bill 20 um, that uh, there's an intent. It's a slippery slope, right? We put electrocuting in there uh, as a felony penalty uh, of torture for a dog or a cat. There's a slippery slope where that could eventually get to our uh, GPS and, um, you know, collars that are able to get the dog's attention with a, uh, with a press of a button. And that takes us to House Bill 344. We talked about it quite a bit already. Uh, I'm not going to prolong that discussion. Uh, 344 would change our licensing system. Uh, House Bill 395. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, congratulations. House Bill 395 was the worst bill we've seen in years. It was going to actually not just change the the uh, appointment procedures of our Fish and Wildlife Commissioners. It was, it was going to do a lot of bad things, but... Uh, the worst thing it was going to do was uh, allow the Secretary of Agriculture to appoint uh, four Fish and Wildlife Commissioners. Yes, House Bill 395, if you didn't hear yet, was going to allow the Secretary of Agriculture to appoint 
fish and wildlife commissioners, which is just ridiculous. There is nothing in agriculture that speaks to the scientific management of wildlife. And, and just to belabor how bad that was, you know, Kentucky Farm Bureau is a great insurance outfit, you know, and they do great things for farmers. But in their own platform, fundamental documentation, Kentucky Farm Bureau calls deer, elk, waterfowl, bears, and turkeys pests that need to be reduced. So having said that, thank goodness we don't have the Secretary of Agriculture trying to influence fish and wildlife. Now on to Senate Bill, or excuse me, House Bill 605, which is very similar to Senate Bill 217. And in fact, we need to talk about Senate Bill 217 um, more than 605 at this point. So Senate Bill 217 and its and its um, companion bill, uh, House Bill 605, still have the worst parts of House Bill 395 in them. So House Bill 395 was defeated but its bones are in Senate Bill 217. And so what that would do, um, there's a whole bunch of objectionable issues in 605 and 217. There's some good stuff. Um, so let's talk about how this, how this went down. So House Bill 395 got defeated. House Bill 605 had the sportsman's attention in the House. We're all focused on defeating those bills in the House. And all of a sudden, Senate Bill 217 starts moving very la rapidly through the Senate. So think about this. Our, our most powerful legislators are going to get something done. If we as a sportsman are focused on defeating it in the House, all of a sudden it pops up in the Senate, and Senate Bill 217, which, folks, is very, very similar to House Bill 605, right? It adjusts the, um, the terms of our commissioners. It adjusts when they're confirmed. It gives the department unprecedented... Um, fiscal autonomy, it takes our department out from under uh, any cabinet in Chapter 12. It does a whole lot of bad things, right? And we were focused on defeating it in the House. All of a sudden, Senate Bill 217, which is the same thing, comes up and starts running through the Senate lightning speed. Guess what? It passed the Senate on Friday. So when we try to defeat something in one chamber... It pops up in the other chamber and moves really quickly. That speaks to who is in power in Frankfurt and the power that they have. Um, so 217 um, is now in the House, uh, or it will be tomorrow morning. Uh, so that kind of makes 605 obsolete, but you got to watch both bills. It's really interesting. Senate Bill 217 did a couple of good things and, and um, that make it less objectionable. One of the things that it did was very much like Senate Bill 356, which wanted to put the Department of Fish and Wildlife Commission under ethics. Senator Webb, Robin Webb, who is the sponsor of 217, met with sportsmen last week. So that's that's a wonderful thing. And we were able to get some amendments into Senate Bill 217 before it ran through the Senate and got approved and is now in the House. One of the things that we're happy about is she wrote that the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the Department of Fish and Wildlife into her bill would be under executive branch ethics. But she left all the bad stuff in there, all the stuff we can't live with that changes our commission, that makes the the department the custodian of its own records, that gives the department unprecedented fiscal autonomy. Friends, remember, our department hasn't passed a fiscal audit. The, the state auditor 
said we need a change of culture at the Department of Fish and Wildlife because they failed the last audit so bad. So there's there's just things in 217 we can't live with. Okay, so we got to defeat 217. That brings us to uh, House Bill 513, um, which speaks to uh, how the Department of Fish and Wildlife acquires and contracts compensation uh, for projects uh, under the Clean Water Act. And they do this through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers uh, with something called FILO money or fee in lieu of money. Um, so basically, um, the department has at its disposal, last time I looked, about $156 million to do wetlands mitigation uh, that offsets construction. Uh, so to make it as, as easy as I can possibly explain it, because we have so much construction going on in our major metropolitan areas, especially Cincinnati uh, Metro and Bowling Green Metro, um, not as much in Louisville and Lexington uh, or Paducah, we as a state um, have uh, the ability to use the United States Army Corps of Engineers program to sell credits, and that allows builders to build, right? And we're supposed to use the money that we get, or the department gets, I keep saying we, we're supposed to use the money the department gets to buy wetlands and riparian areas to offset the construction of urban sprawl in other areas. So House Bill 513 and Senate Bill 218 are, are they're paired at the hip the same way House Bill 605 and 217 are. So House Bill 513 and 218 um, would allow the department uh, to spend that money um, with very, very little oversight. And one of the most troubling points in House Bill 513 or Senate Bill 218 is that it would um, make the Commissioner of Fish and Wildlife, who is right now Mr. Storm, the sole arbiter of any protests so if if the department got much more autonomy and much more uh, uh, freedom and less oversight to spend uh, over 150 million dollars um, that they have in the account right now and someone were to protest one of those contracts the the sole arbiter would be you know, the commissioner of fish and wildlife which is right now mr storm so friends this is this is uh, if you look at all these bills in some total, right, if you look at House Bill 344, House Bill 395, which we defeated, Senate Bill 217, House Bill 605, Senate Bill 218, and House Bill 513, they are all designed to minimize the relevance and importance of the nine volunteer commissioners that are supposed to represent us because we contribute 95% of the department's budget every year, right? Between licenses, which is approximately 50%, Pittman-Robertson and Dingle-Johnson money, which is excise taxes on our gear and our fuel, another 35 to 40%, and then boating licenses, which is somewhere between 9 and 15%. It fluctuates. Those are approximate percentages, but somewhere between 93 and 98% of the department's budget comes directly or indirectly out of your pockets, ladies and gentlemen, as sportsmen. That's why our Fish and Wildlife Commission was created to represent us, and that's why they have the authority under Kentucky Revised Statute, Chapter 150, a whole series of law, a whole series inside the Chapter 150 allows them to manage these things for us. But we're not seeing that. 
we're seeing it come through changes in the law that our legislators are making, marginalizing our commission. So what I'm seeing on the horizon, what I'm talking to with all the graybeards, all the folks that have been doing this for 30, 40 years, it appears that we're coming to the sunset, to the end of our commission system, to the end of our voice matters more. It's a troubling situation, Ben. It's a troubling, troubling situation. Yeah, it really is. And it, it just becomes more more evident just day by day. Yeah, I mean, and you can't, the funny part is you can't just focus, like we focused on 395 because we were all just so against the Secretary of Agriculture, who's a good man. Secretary Corals is a great guy. Hope he runs for governor. But the, but the, but the Department of Agriculture has no business managing fish and wildlife. None. None whatsoever. Okay, and they shouldn't be appointing commissioners uh, for any reason. Right? So we got focused on that, and then all of a sudden 344 makes it through, the, um, and, you know, 217 makes it through, and all of a sudden, you know, we got 605, and then 513 and 218 show up. Oh, my Lord, you know. And, and it's just when taken some total, and you look at what happened last year when the department um, could not get, uh, well, we don't need to revisit all the details, but, but let's just put it this way. The Fish and Wildlife Commission could not get the contract they wanted uh, for Mr. Storm last year. So they passed House Bill 395 last year, um, and they're, they were in court until, um, until uh, House Bill 395 or 394 last year passed. They were in court and losing um, because they decided to sue um, – the executive branch cabinets, the finance cabinet and uh, the tourism cabinet. That Now, that if you ask Chairman Kleiner, he said, oh, we sued the governor. Well, you didn't. You sued the finance and administration cabinet and you sued the tourism arts and heritage cabinet. So um, they were losing that lawsuit. Okay, so this sounds a lot like the lawsuit they're in right now with the Kentucky Open Government Coalition. They're losing that lawsuit. What do they do? They recently put into both of these bills, Senate Bill 217 and House Bill 605, that they get to be the custodian of their own records. Would that not supersede the judge's ruling in the case with Kentucky Open Government Coalition? Sounds like it would. Last year they were losing their lawsuit to give them um, the autonomy to contract however they wanted, the judge came back and said, yes, you can pick Mr. Storm, you can pick Santa Claus. That's that's not up for debate. What you can't do is tell the finance cabinet how to set the parameters for contracts. What you can't do is tell the tourism cabinet that they have no say in the contract. You can pick the person, you just can't you know, set the contract on your own. So they sue last year. Okay, They're losing the lawsuit. They go to the commissioners, go to their friends in the legislature and say, man, we're losing this lawsuit. House Bill 394 gets rammed down our throats. Boom. Makes the lawsuit, you know, basically worthless. Mr. Storm gets a four-year contract. That was last year. This year, they're losing the lawsuit in Kentucky Open Government Coalition on open records. Guess what? In two different laws or two different, they're not laws yet. In two different bills, Senate Bill 217 and House Bill 605, they become the sole custodian of, sole custodian of their own records. Just ridiculous. Just ridiculous. They're doing an end around on the judicial branch with those two, and they're doing an end around on the constitutional authority of the governor um, with Senate Bill 350. 
um, by saying, you know, that nominees to appointed positions that require Senate confirmation can't sit in those seats and represent the Kentuckians that they're supposed to represent until they're confirmed. Well, conf- confirmation only happens, you know, sometime between January and March. It normally happens at the end of the session, late March every year. So if, if someone was appointed to represent uh, a constituency on any of the dozens of boards and commissions, not just the one we're concerned about, which is Fish and Wildlife. If anyone was appointed in April, they got to sit there until the legislative session comes in in January of the following year and not represent so the people in the district aren't represented. That's the important part. That's the democracy part is representing the constituency. Nope, we're not going to do that. We're going to undermine the constitutional authority of the governor and the executive branch. Okay, so the last the last bill we need to talk about is House Bill 572. Now, House Bill 572 is desperately needed. I'm very concerned about it. House Bill 572 would update the pay and benefits of our conservation officers. It's a it's a comprehensive reform bill to update their pay and benefits. Comprehensive reform bills scare me because they normally take mm, two to three years to get done. Uh, you have to educate a whole lot of legislators on why you need such comprehensive reform, and you have to educate those same legislators about how much it's going to cost. 572 just popped up this year. Do we need to help our conservation officers out with paying benefits? Absolutely. We've talked about it four times already. Absolutely. But a comprehensive reform bill is tough to get through. It's really tough. The fear I have with this bill is if it doesn't go through this year, Next year is a non-spending session. The legislature, um, every other year, passes a budget that they get from the governor's office. We work on a two-year budget cycle, meaning the odd years we don't pass a budget, and because we don't pass a budget, you can't pass any bill that requires spending. So if we don't get House Bill 572 across the finish line this year, we it, it can't be heard. It can't be heard next year. And if it can't be heard next year, then we're looking at 2024, two more years before we can re- that we can reform the pay and benefits, that we can improve the pay and benefits to retain these good men and women in our conservation officer core. And I don't know how many we're going to lose in two years, Ben. It could be it could be devastating. I mean, absolutely devastating. Yeah, I mean, how, how many counties did you say earlier don't have a designated officer? My research is 52 out of 120 don't have a dedicated officer. That's Yeah, that's ridiculous. Yeah, we got to get that fixed. Um, so, you know, next <laughs> next month we'll have, probably have a wrap-up on, um, on uh, what's going on in Frankfurt. Maybe the Fish and Wildlife Commission will have their March meeting in April. You know, they moved it so that uh, Commissioner Mackey and Commissioner Farrell couldn't sit on another meeting until they were confirmed, which, you know, speaks to the language in 217, Senate Bill 217 and Senate Bill 350 and House Bill 605. You know, they can't sit on a commissioner or board until they're confirmed. But, you know, that's that's more despicable bullcrap. Um so we were asked um, we were asked to add an educational component uh, to the uh, to the show to try to uh, the specific ask was 
to help sportsmen and women be more and better informed. Um, so not just informing them what's going on in Frankfurt, but to help teach a little bit uh, about some of the doctrine and policies and law um, that underpins and, you know, is foundational uh, to the North American model of wildlife management and the way we do business. And uh, last time you and I podcasted, we talked about the Pittman-Robertson Act or the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. The Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. This month, we're going to talk about the Dingle-Johnson Act, which is also the, the, it's the fisheries component to Pittman-Robertson. So why Pittman-Robertson does uh, federal aid in wildlife restoration, Dingle-Johnson does federal aid in sport fish restoration. Okay, so the Dingle-Johnson Act, which is named after the two prime sponsors of, of the law, um, was originally enacted in 1950 um, to provide financial assistance for state fish restoration and management plans. Um, the act has been uh, amended 11 times, the last time in 1992, and it's, it's really a unique partnership um, of cooperation between state and federal wildlife agencies. And so what happens is, is um, there's an excise tax, ladies and gentlemen. So you might not realize it, but if you buy a, a fishing rod, a portion uh, of what you paid for that rod goes to the Department of the Interior, and the Department of Interior hangs on to that excise tax, right? It's not the sales tax you paid at the register. It's included in the price that you see when you go to Cabela's or Sportsman's Warehouse and you look at the price on a rod and reel. It's included in the price. It's an excise tax that this law established. And it actually... Um, pertains to rods, reels, creels, lures, um, boats, uh, boat motors, uh, boat fuel, uh, import duties on boats. So if you had a boat built in Canada, the import duty on that boat, uh, it's all collected as excise tax, right? There's a portion of it that's collected. And it goes um, into a trust fund at the Treasury, but it's managed by the Department of Interior. And um, those funds are then available back to the states, um, in a 25%, 75% state-federal match grant program. So all the monies that we um, pay out of our pockets, right, as license holders, when we go fishing, or, or if you're just a boater, you pay into this because the boats, the boat motors, and the fuel also counts. Those monies go to the Treasury for the Department of Interior and then the Department of Fish and Wildlife in Kentucky, just like all other all the other 49 states in the country, puts in projects, right, as a grant proposal through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and gets them approved. Once they're approved, then the federal government uses that money, your money that they collected on the excise tax for your fishing equipment, boating equipment, and fuel, to pay 75% of a project for the state of Kentucky, the Department of Fish and Wildlife pays 25%, 75-25 match. Okay, so once again, Dingle Johnson, or the Federal Aid and Sport Fish Restoration Act, is the fisheries component to Pittman-Robertson, which is the Federal Aid and Wildlife Restoration Act. It, just like Pittman-Robertson, Dingle Johnson collects a percentage of the cost that you pay on all of your fishing and boating equipment and fuel. It takes that money and gives it to the U.S. Treasury who holds it for the Department of Interior. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is under the Department of Interior. And so our state 
Department of Fish and Wildlife Resources applies for grants through U.S. and Fish and Wildlife, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. If it's approved, then the federal government pays the state of Kentucky 75% of the project. That's your money back to the state. Huh. That's a hard one, though. <laughs> that's also a hard one to get across. I hope I got it. Did I do that? Did I do that justice? I believe so. Yep, I believe you did. And uh, we can only hope that uh, the senators and representatives in Kentucky here are uh, looking at that as an example of good legislation. Absolutely. That's a great way to put it. I mean, Pittman-Robertson and Dingle Johnson are absolutely outstanding legislation. And they came from a time period in, you know, the, the, the post-World War II time period when we there were no deer in Kentucky. So they had we, we as sportsmen helped pass these two laws that made our rifles, our bows, made everything we use more expensive for hunting. We helped pass Dingle Johnson, which made everything for fishing and boating more expensive. And we're paying out of our pocket to fund these programs and to fund these projects that the department has. So once again, folks, this is this Pittman Robertson Dingle Johnson's an excise tax that you pay on your hunting and fishing gear and your boating gear. Okay. That accounts for 35% of the Department of Fish and Wildlife's budget in Kentucky every year. 35%. 50% of the department comes directly from your hunting and fishing trap and boating license that you that you get, right? Or not boating. Hunting, fishing, trapping license. Boating's a little separate, but it does go to the department. Okay, so 50% is hunting, fishing, trapping. Okay. 35% is excise taxes, Dingle Johnson and Pittman Robertson. So 85% every year comes directly out of your pocket. So there you go. Okay. So we're on to listener email. Holy cow. Mm. Always a lot going on, man, especially during this time of the year with the legislation. Um, yeah, man. Okay, so oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot to keep up with, that's for sure. <laughs> it's it's all day, every day. And, and now that I'm back to work teaching high school, man, it's like I get off work and I come home and, and I try to get caught up and read on these things. I, I'm so blessed we have great partners at the League of Kentucky Sportsmen and Kentucky and a Safari Club, you know, that, you know, you and me as part of the leadership of Kentucky Backcountry Hunters and Anglers have that partnership with the league and SCI here in Kentucky is, is a total blessing because those guys really keep me straight and help me uh, get Absolutely. this. Yeah. So, um, Jameson uh, from Spencer County, that's in the 3rd District, uh, your commissioner is Mr. Swallows. Uh, Jameson from Spencer County writes in to say, I'm new to the state and have tried to get in touch with my commissioner for a while. I tried the email listed and then it went away and the website said to go through the department. My commissioner is still not responding and now I see they have an official email versus the personal email I was using before. What's going on? Jameson, this is what we talked about earlier. Um, there's a court case with the Kentucky Open Government Coalition. Um, the department lost um, uh, a portion of that court case. Um, the original complaint was, um, or it originally started with open records request. Um, and uh, that open records request was denied. Uh, the person that made the legal open records request appealed to the attorney general. The attorney general said, yes, you must give up the records. Uh, the department did not. And the open records, or the Kentucky Open Government Coalition sued the department. Shortly after that happened, uh, shortly after Judge Wingate made his ruling, uh, 
um, the department pulled the Fish and Wildlife Commissioner's personal emails off of the website, and they took about three weeks to issue them uh, official emails, um, which is which is kind of strange anyway, right, Ben? I mean, like, I, I can register for an email in about uh, ten minutes, maybe. With <laughs> yeah, probably not even that long. <laughs> yeah, right. So it took them it took them about three weeks, but um, it was cause. You know, it was cause and reaction or cause and action or however you want to look at it. It was the cause was, um, you know, they now have to give up this information um, or, or it's actually on appeal right now. So they still are not giving up the information the attorney general said they were supposed to give up. And Judge Wingate said they were supposed to give up because they've appealed it. So it's still in the court. Um, but my advice is, Jameson, um, keep trying to reach out to Mr. Swallows. Um, you know, all you can do is keep trying. Uh, like I said earlier, I, I'm not having any luck myself and, and he and I used to shoot archery tournaments together. He, he's not a bad guy. Um, I just, he just won't talk anymore. I don't know what's going on, but that brings up a couple of things. L let's talk about, um, public, public comment, right? We, we've watched, um, since 2019, um, our ability to comment on anything um, eroded, uh, reduced, um, cut in half, then cut in half again, then cut in half again, to where it's almost zero, right? So it gets to the point where sportsmen aren't told anything, uh, where we, we call our commissioners and try to get some information. We try to participate. We have, Ben, you and I are, you know, on uh, the board of directors at Kentucky uh, backcountry hunters and anglers. I'm also on the board of directors of two other wildlife conservation uh, entities. We have people that pay dues to us, and our members have questions, and they ask us as the leadership of these conservation organizations what's going on. So we ask our commissioners who won't answer our telephone calls and, and won't get back to us to tell us what's going on. So we're forced to put an open records request. Then we put an open records request. And the department denies it or delays it. And w what we get back is, you know, almost always not what we <laughs> asked for, you know. And so then we complain to the attorney general. So if, if the department is really transparent, then why don't they just give us what we asked for when we call them on the phone? You know, when we reach out to our commissioner like Jameson's trying to do, when he's reaching out to your commissioner and you're asking for information, why don't they just give it to us? Why is it always this fight, right? Well, that takes me back to the fact that we used to have eight meetings a year, you know. We had eight meetings a year where you could go to Frankfurt and have public comment, public input. It's now four meetings a year. Fifty percent of our opportunities to have public comment are gone, right? Then COVID hit, okay? Well, let's go back to before COVID hit. After Chairman Kleiner took over, public comment was reduced you sign up you had to sign up for public comment you couldn't just stand up and politely wait and to go to the microphone to speak you had to sign up for public comment only those who signed up were allowed to speak and chairman Kleiner <laughs> limited your ability to speak to two minutes they actually put a timer up on the screen you know like you're waiting for the last shot in a basketball game so we had the number of public meetings cut in half Chairman Kleiner reduced public speaking to two minutes at the meetings we did have, right? Then COVID hit. COVID had an interesting negative effect on public comment as well. You'd think with online meetings, we'd be able to have a chat 
you know, to the side of the meeting where we could ask questions. Nope. They turned the chat off. What they said was you have to send us an email either the night before the meeting, after you read the agenda, if you have questions, up until 1030 the morning uh, during the meeting. Well, the meeting started at 830. They go till three or four in the afternoon. So you have to have your question into them and done by 1030. That's not really public comment. The meeting is still ongoing. How are we supposed to have any impact? They don't want us to have impact. Let's talk about those four meetings that were, when we used to have eight meetings, four of them were committee meetings. We used to have a fisheries committee, a wildlife committee, a public relations committee, and an administration committee, right? And those committees would meet, and they'd meet publicly, and we could sit in those meetings and have input. Those meetings are gone. The department said they were going to replace those committee meetings with working groups. Well, you can't figure out, um, nor can you attend uh, those working groups. Now, they publish who's on some of them. They don't publish who's on all of them. And I have, first, I have firsthand knowledge because I was asked to be on the elk working group. Uh, and, and to my knowledge, there were only three sportsmen in the state on any working group. Um, Don Thomas, the president of the Elk Guides Association, and I were on the elk working group. The only other sportsman I know that was on any working group was Scott Cronin. Scott Cronin's an exceptionally well-qualified educator and conservationist, and he was on the WMA Public Lands Working Group. He's also a member of BHA. Uh, full disclosure, uh, he's a great dude. Love the guy. So you had three sportsmen in the whole state on any one of the working group meetings. So four public meetings went away. Right, Four opportunities for anybody to show up in Frankfurt and provide public comment went away. They were supposed to be replaced by working groups. You can't figure out when they meet or who's on them, really. Um, and when they publish who's on them, it's not right. My name was still on there for months after I resigned from the Elk Working Group. But Mr. Cronin was uh, fired from the Public Lands Working Group for asking too many questions. So the only, to my knowledge, sportsman that was left was Don Thomas, the president of the Elk Guys Association. Well, guess what they did? They sunsetted. They ended. They got rid of the Elk Working Group. So now there's no sportsman, to my knowledge, on any of these working groups. I can't find it. So four public meetings went away. It was supposed to be replaced by working groups. No working group that I know of has a single sportsman on it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you, there's a concerted effort by this commission under the leadership of Dr. Carl Kleiner, the chair of the Fish and Wildlife Commission, to absolutely limit, reduce, or eliminate public comment. That is unethical. And that's why we need these ethics clauses passed in the House, in the Senate. Whoever's going to pass it, pass it. Because what they're doing is unethical. Um, so I wish I had better news. Um, Jameson's question kind of... Uh, hit a sore spot. <laughs> I, we don't have public comment anymore uh, in, in the fish and wildlife genre. We just don't. So Yeah, and uh, even like the public comment, uh, like where you have to have you know your email submitted and all that stuff, that allows them to cherry pick certain topics that they can talk about and not talk about as well. It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, well, we, we didn't receive that email or it wasn't clear enough for us to discuss. So that allows them to, to pick what they discuss out of that. Yes. And so what, what Ben just said, ladies and gentlemen, is profound. Here, here's the great thing about public comment. It's public. So if, 
if um, Menifee County Rod and Gun Club president asks a question about whitetail deer numbers in the fourth uh, or in zone four, we all get to see the question he asked. It's public, right? If, you know, if uh, the former president of the League of Kentucky Sportsman, who's now the third district president, Ed Morris, wants to know um, about sport fish restoration in the Kentucky River now a couple years after the distillery caught fire and basically so much bourbon went into that river it killed everything so let's say ed morris has a question about that we all get to see that answer that's how it's supposed to work right it's public comment the way they do it now you submit your email they will sometimes email you back they say they get to everybody that's not true they don't get to everybody um and they don't answer every single question uh they will cherry pick one just like ben said and they will read it at the beginning of the meeting and then they will read their very well prepared answer right so it's it's not public comment it's not an ongoing dialogue of collaboration and trust the way it was designed to be and every time we ask for records and are told no every time we catch them doing an illegal public meeting and and say hey you violated the open meetings they don't say oh i'm sorry let's fix it they say okay we're suing you we're suing somebody over it. And, they're, and the lawyers they're using are paid for with our hunting and fishing license money. And, our, you know, it's, it's just it's, we're in a tragic situation. And um, when, when taken in context, when taken holistically, when you step back and look at the forest of everything that's happened over the last uh, going on three years now, since 2019, you step back and look at what's going on with the commissioner and with the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the way these laws are being written. Uh, it's not just myself, Ben. It, it's other leaders who, you know, who've been at this as long or some of them many, many more years than me who see the end of the system uh, as we know it. T- to quote an REM song, it's the end of the world as we know it. So there you go. Uh- that was a lot to unpack, but uh, I think you did it. I think you did it justice there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we we've got to get the sportsmen and women to pay attention, and we got to get the legislators to pay attention. You know, the the previous governor governor's election was decided by five thousand one hundred and thirty six votes. Five thousand one hundred and thirty six votes. Every time I've tried over the last five years to extrapolate or to figure out how many sportsmen and women there are of voting age, I always come up with a number over 600,000. The department, last time the department um, published total licenses sold, including out-of-state, I want to say it was close to 880,000 total. And when I tried to extrapolate the number that would be voting age, uh, sportsmen and women, um, it was over 600,000. So think about it. 1%, 1%, just 1% of sportsmen and women is 6,000 votes. If the last governor's election was decided by 5,136, do these legislators not think that upset and angry sportsmen and women can't pull an election to the left or to the right or to the right or to the left? We absolutely can pull an election. Are we angry enough to do it? I think so. So... You know, this is going to be an interesting um, next two years. Uh, 
you know, Mr. Storm's contract goes um, for almost, shoot, for another two years on the calendar because it's 2022, but it's more than 20, or it's more than two years because, you know, we just started 2022. So they've got at least two more sessions with this uh, leadership uh, at the department and on the Fish and Wildlife Commission, um, especially if these uh, if these bills go through that don't allow the incumbent to exit the Fish and Wildlife Commission and the new appointee to sit on the Fish and Wildlife Commission, um, not only are we going to have Mr. Storm and Mr. Clark run the department, we're likely going to have uh, Carl Kleinert and all these same commissioners sitting in these chairs um, uh, for at least two more legislative sessions. So uh, wish I had better news. So ladies and gentlemen, that, that about wraps it up. Um, uh, our next podcast, um, we won't be all doom and gloom. Uh, we're going to talk about some public land hunting strategies um, that we've used successfully. Um, between Ben and I, I think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 or 40 years of hunting experience. And uh, we're going to talk about some public land hunting strategies that we've both used for um, big game and water and waterfowl and turkeys. Um, and uh, we're not going to give away any of our best spots. Sorry, spoiler alert. We're not doing that. Um, but we're going to talk about some happy subjects. And uh, we're also going to update you guys on uh, what happened in the April full commission meeting. And again, uh, what's going on that's uh, good news and bad news at the federal level. Uh, ben, you got any final thoughts? Uh, nope, I don't believe so. Okay, well, hey man, I appreciate and uh, and and uh, and need to tell you that I appreciate you and and all your help that to get these podcasts together and and get them up on um, you know Podbean so everybody can listen to them. Um, so I just wanted to publicly thank you. Uh, it's been a good partnership now for uh, well over a year, so. Appreciate your partner. Oh yeah, uh, yep, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it can be a challenge to write these scripts and do the research because we're trying we're trying never to, to tell a tell a tall tale, right? As as sportsmen, right? That fish that was really eighteen inches by the time we get done telling the story is twenty two inches. Mm-hmm. So we're you know that turkey that was nineteen pounds by the time we get done telling the story twenty one pounds. So. We're, we're generally, uh, as uh, hunters and fishers, we're fabulous liars, um, but that's all in the telling of a hunting and fishing story. What we're trying to do here is get the truth across to the sportsmen and women of Kentucky so they can be better informed and participate. So that wraps, wraps up the uh, March 22 podcast. Um, ben and I both have emails for this podcast. Mine is ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, at theslowhunt.com, all one word. Ben, what's yours? Bishop at the slowhunt.com. Okay, so ranger at the slowhunt.com and bishop at the slowhunt.com. And uh, time for the disclaimer. Um, and uh, hey, we forgot to plug your buddy, the musician that lets us use his music. Oh, yeah, uh, yep, Grayson. Yep. Yep, Grayson Jenkins, ladies and gentlemen. So um, if you kind of like the, the bluesy, bluegrassy uh, riff that that walks you into the show and takes you home from the show. That is Grayson Jenkins, a good friend of Ben's. And uh, it's uh, really easy to listen to his music, actually watch his music videos. Just go to YouTube and type in Grayson, like Grayson County, Kentucky, Jenkins, J-E-N-K-I-N-S. 
Grayson Jenkins. So thanks again, Grayson. Okay, so we here at the Slow Hunt LLC don't endorse or sell any products whatsoever. Uh, we're here to educate and inform sportsmen and women of the Commonwealth. In fact, the book I wrote had the same mission to educate and help sportsmen and women. And all proceeds from the book were donated last year to Kentucky Hunters for the Hungry. So this podcast is part of our work as freelance journalists and is part of the Slow Hunt LLC network, all rights reserved. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you and uh, God bless.